Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, ironradio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and sports nutrition professor of about 15 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is the one and only Dr. John Mike. It's uh, good to be back on the show. It's been a while. Things have been crazy and busy, and um, it's about 60, 65 degrees here. The sun is finally out, nice. and uh, we all have loving having those uh, weekend morning pancakes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I actually, I was making pancakes just the other day and it looked so good. I took a picture of it, you know, like uh, <laughs> Mike Nelson will food blog stuff, you know, and this, yep. I don't know, it's just, you get that perfect stack of pancakes. I'm like, I should tweet that or something because, you know, John Mike is going to salivate when he sees that one. That's big, right. Big old That's stack right. Of pancakes. Okay, everybody, we have um, a lot of stuff going on here today. We have uh, quite a bit of news and mail uh, which is sort of par for the course these days. So we're going to get through the, the news in the mail. And then after the break, um, Dr. Mike and I are going to talk about uh, nervous system tweaks in the gym to boost your strength. There are a few things that can substantially increase your power output and force and that sort of thing, uh, literally within minutes. And um, we're going to talk about those things. So, But first, uh, to the uh, mail and news strength and muscle sport news this first bit of news is from listener karen and and karen i appreciate this this is a um it reminds me that we can't get too excited about something uh and in this case it's curcumin so uh if you're not familiar listeners curcumin it has all kinds of anti-inflammatory sort of antioxidant type qualities it's been researched and certainly sold for all kinds of things from joint pain uh, to um, like nervous system issues, uh, stuff like that. So, but let me get to this. This is a little sobering, and we, you know, we need to be neutral and sober here w- with this evidence. It says this is from Science Daily. Contrary to decades of hype, curcumin alone is unlikely to boost health. So it says there's a new scientific literature, a new review here on curcumin. It's found that it's probably not all it's ground up to be. Uh, The report in the American Chemical Society's Journal of Medicinal Chemistry cites evidence that contrary to numerous reports, the compound has limited, if any, therapeutic benefit. Now, I've been taking a curcumin uh, bromelain uh, mixture lately, trying to find something to help me with my, you know, (laughs) my beat up high mileage joints. But um, it says since the early 90s, scientists have zeroed in on curcumin, you know, as sort of that main um, active ingredient, if you will, in turmeric or, you know, in curry powders and that sort of thing. Uh, it says curcumin makes up three to 5% of turmeric. Uh, it says there are more than 120 clinical trials to test these different claims, these health boosting claims, uh, either having been done or are currently being done. So it says, uh, these researchers review, of the vast curcumin literature provides evidence that curcumin is unstable under physiologic conditions and is not readily absorbed by the body. And of course, those things aren't going to help make something a good, you know, therapeutic substance. 
additionally, they could find no evidence of a double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trial on curcumin to support its status as a potential cure-all. Now, I don't like that little addition. No one is going to do a, a double-blind, placebo-controlled study with the hypothesis having anything to do with cure-all. You know, it's, right. it's silly. Exactly. Uh, so that's sort of the journalist in, interjecting. So you got to be careful with some of these science journalists. But it says the researchers suggest feature studies should take a more holistic approach to account for the spice's chemically diverse uh, components. So um, I don't know. Uh, it, it seems interesting that this review seems to say it doesn't have any efficacy. And then they say future studies are needed. Well, if it's really doing nothing, why are future studies needed? I, I don't know. Now, it's good to keep in mind there are studies out there that suggest it does uh, have anti-inflammatory properties and that sort of stuff. I'm sure you can find in vitro stuff, maybe even um, human clinical trials and that kind of stuff. But this is a big review. Uh, in fact, Science Daily, where this comes from, this is just the journalism outlet, really, Um it has other articles specifically talking about some of the benefits. So I think what we need, need to do is hone in on some of the key issues here. One is it's not well absorbed. We've talked about that on the show. And then researchers will mix it with different things. Like if you go on Amazon right now, like I'll buy a, occasional like herbal type stuff from Now, the Now company. And they, they have, I don't know, they probably have three or four different versions of curcumin products, some of which are supposed to be more bioavailable and that, you know, that sort of thing. So... Uh, because this does say curcumin alone. So I don't know. I, I guess I, what I'm saying to listeners, don't get too excited about the whole, you know, turmeric curcumin stuff. Uh, I do think it still holds promise. I can tell you there are a few things that I've been exposed to over the last 10 or 20 years from a science perspective that seems to repeatedly have at least some beneficial, you know, evidence behind it. So, but this review said it's not enough. So, um, stay tuned, I guess, when it comes to the curcumin thing. And like I said, of course, it's been on the market for, for ages. But uh, the next one, and I apologize, everybody, if I, I sound like I'm holding my nose because I have a, a kind of a cold here. But this one made me raise an eyebrow. I'm like, well, okay, what is this? New urine test quickly detects whether a person has a healthy diet. Now the first thing I want I want to do, and I know you're thinking this, John, is like define healthy, please. You know, right. um, so I got this through Tech Networks. Uh, this is spanking new uh, this month. Um, the original story was from Imperial College London, but basically it says scientists have developed a urine test that measures the health of a person's diet. The five-minute test measures biological markers in urine created by the breakdown of foods such as red meat, chicken, fish and fruits and vegetables. Now, I think that's a little misleading as far as a lead-in because it says five-minute test, but I, when you go look at the full abstract, and if you look later in this article, it does say that this is a, essentially you have to do breakfast, lunch, and dinner urine collections. And that should make sense, right? What you eat, and yeah. then what ends up in your pee, and then what you eat for lunch, and what ends up in your pee. Um, and it's kind of really convenient too. It's like, you got to do that three times a day or four times a day. And, um, so, yeah, I've um, done 24 hour urine collections before for nitrogen balance studies or for uh, kidney function tests. And I can tell you chasing subjects can be very painful because they're like, mm -hmm. Oh, I forgot. And I peed in the toilet. I'm like, you should have left the container on the lid of the toilet, you know? Right. And, but <laughs> anyway, it's, it, 
24 hour or even repeatedly across a day like this, yeah, you always end up with sort of non-compliance and stuff. But here's what what they say. Um, Professor Gary Frost, who's one of the authors on the study, uh, says a major weakness in all nutrition and diet studies is that we have no true measure of what people eat. We rely on people keeping basically diet logs, but studies suggest uh, up to 60% of people misreport on diet logs. And there is some truth to this, everybody, right? It's someone will underreport on a diet log, or I've actually worked with some, uh, you know, heavy lifter type guys. I think, frankly, they overreport. Like I'll, I'll tell you, I remember there were two guys in some of the, the the renal high protein studies I was doing. We called them the Beef Brothers, and these guys they started every day with uh, they ate three pounds of beef. That's the first thing they did. They grilled up or uh, you know burger, a beef burger, and I'm wondering, did they really eat? that or is that an exaggeration so diet logs are sort of subjective so they're trying to say what's what's in your pee that we can validate this so the study was uh, published in the journal lancet diabetes and endocrinology and i did pull the paper um they asked 19 volunteers to follow different diets and then they looked at their pee so uh they collected the samples again morning afternoon and evening they looked at hundreds of different compounds and here's what it says. The compounds included substances that are indicators of the consumption of red meat, chicken, fish, fruits, vegetables, and it gives indications uh, indirectly, perhaps, on protein intake, fiber, and sugar. And then it says even specific food compounds like those that come from citrus, grapes, or green leafies, uh, vegetables, uh, were looked for. So they're trying to create this urine metabolite profile to frankly help researchers, not unlike what, what Dr. Mike and I do, like kind of validate a food record, right? Like, no, you ate, you know, you ate more sugar than you said you did, or you ate, you know, whatever. It says Dr. Dr. Isabel Garcia Perez, uh, one of the authors, explained that we need to develop uh, the test further so we can monitor the diet based on a single urine sample as well as to increase the sensitivity. And then let me just go to the study itself here from the National Library of Medicine. The study is called Objective Assessment of Dietary Patterns by Use of Metabolic Phenotyping, a Randomized Controlled Crossover Trial. So in, in the actual study from the actual researchers that didn't go through the journalism filter, it basically says metabolic profiling allows simultaneous measurement of hundreds of metabolites in the urine, the concentrations of which can be affected by food intake. So they talked about the healthy volunteers, age 21 to 65. So it's, I like essentially what they did. Not only did they, they looked at this profile of what pe people ate, but then they went and they tried to like validate it and identify diets with it. Like if they categorize you in um, a certain healthy diet, which they used World Health Organization guidelines, if they put you in a certain category, like this guy's a healthy diet consumer, you know, uh, lean meats, lots of fruits and vegetables, whatever. Then they went and they saw in a blinded way, can we identify people? Like all we've got is their pee. You know, did this guy eat healthy or not? And right. apparently they can. So, you know, they, they first got the, the known diets, urine output, and then they tried to take that same profile and identify how people ate. And then they were able to accurately basically identify people that were on their quote unquote healthy diets. Now what they did actually when you get to the paper is yeah, they pooled, they took a urine sample between 9 a.m. and noon, another one in the afternoon, another one overnight, 
uh, and then they pooled. You know, so essentially this is a, a pooled 24-hour urine sample, and they used NMR spectroscopy to look at it. So the interpretation from the authors themselves, again, Garcia Perez is the first author, urinary metabolite models developed in a highly controlled environment can classify groups of free-living people into consumers of diets that are associated with either lower or higher uh, disease risk, non-communicable disease risk, uh, on the basis of multivariate metabolite patterns. This approach enables objective monitoring of dietary patterns in the population uh, and enhances the validity of dietary reporting. So if they can make this convenient, I'm all about it because I, I use diet logs myself. And I know yeah, that I use a diet. Yeah, you know, I, we've used diet logs before with um, students, and um, one of our graduate students now is actually going to just use one for more kind of like descriptive purposes um, for some of their studies. But I used one in my dissertation. We actually used my fitness pal, and I mean, and, you know, food food logs and dietary logs and compliance can can be difficult, especially when you have to put all the details and the nutritional um, information in there. But I mean, Lana, you know, as well as I do, I mean, you can get a, even just from, from a pure hydration status, you can get a pretty good indicator of hydration status just based off um, like urine color, urine color chart. And if you want to be a little bit more accurate, you can use, you know, urine, um, you know, specific refractometer, uh, you know, for example. So sure, um, yep. I remember like, I remember in the past, um, and maybe some people even still say this. Some people think like if your if your urine color is like you know bright yellow or dark yellow, like you have too much sugar in your body, and and I'm just like I I don't even know where where that even came from. Um, but I mean, unless your urine color is you know really dark yellow, or if you have extreme muscle damage like a rhabdomyolysis, and your urine color is dark and Coca-Cola colored urine, for the most part. Um, in terms of just just hydration status, I'm not talking about like you know things in the diet. Right. Um, you're 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 fairly you're fairly hydrated. Uh, right. No, it's true, and you're right. When it comes to urine, um, in fact, I have a new urinalysis device. I'm going to start. I'm going to relaunch basically my research on high protein diets and kidney function because it always gets so much negative press, and right. there's no good evidence that in healthy people high protein diets harm kidney function. But so I've got uh, a new device it's exactly like one i used to use and i am going to restart this but you're right i mean guys like you and i right now when it comes to urinalysis i might look at nitrogen or like you said specific gravity is the person just dehydrated right. or not and like you said i mean that's using a little refractometer isn't that different from just looking at dark urine but you're right, right. what's causing the darker urine uh so this this new study could if they can validate this stuff, and like I said, it's it's not that expensive, I'm all about it because, yeah, self-report is always a bit of an issue, you know, when it comes to dietary stuff. So Definitely. Okay. Um, I got two questions. This first one is nutritional, and the second one is training. So this first one's from Peter. So thanks, Peter. He says, hi, Dr. Lowry. I'm a longtime listener of Iron Radio, and I thought if anyone could answer my question or knew who could, it would be you. I've been researching amino acid profiles of different brands of whey protein isolates, and the differences have been disquieting and somewhat shocking. Put it this way, the last protein that I bought has less than half of the amino acids in it, despite claiming it has 26 grams of protein, than the one I just purchased, uh, which is from New Zealand grass-fed cows, I believe. So I was wondering, do you know what variables change the amino acid profile in a whey protein? Is it the extraction process, uh, or does it start with the breed of cow and the feed? On a performance level, what exactly would we be looking for when it comes to the amino acid profile in a scoop of whey? 
uh, I have a strong feeling that despite all protein brands putting their amino acid profiles on the label, no one actually reads or understands what's on it. Thanks for all the great content on Iron Radio and your no BS approach to the field. Kind regards, Pete. This is a tough question, Pete, and I think you've actually answered yourself. Uh, I cannot speak definitively on this. I would actually point you to Justin Strait, who we had on the show not that long ago. Justin, he's got a, a degree in exercise physiology. He's got a solid background of coursework, and he works at a huge protein company. So I'll try to fire him an email and see what he thinks. Uh, but in short, I bet it does have a little bit of something to do with the extraction process. It probably has to do with the breed of cow. We mentioned just, um, I think, last week or the week before about they're trying to identify the A2 casein in cows, like cows that produce it. So it might have to do with that or the, the diet of the cow. All of these things could uh, potentially have an effect. But you would think that whey protein has a fairly generic standard profile. You know, that, for example, whey protein should be very rich in the amino acid leucine. That's one of the things that makes whey superior when it comes to things like tissue building and post-workout protein synthesis and, you know, stuff like that. So um, I would, I guess, as a general tip, because this is the best I can do right now, Peter, but is be careful. Like, if you can get an idea, either of a trusted brand or something from the literature, like the food technologists, uh, of what profile a generic way looks like you know the kind of way that's tested in the literature see how things vary from that like i said leucine should be one that jumps out at you i would also be wary if if you see an amino acid that's in huge concentrations compared to everything else they might be nitrogen spiking it and i think you know what i mean pete but it's essentially they'll they'll overstuff a cheap amino acid in there so then they can put that they can make that 20 gram dose uh on the label you know, on the nutrition facts panel or supplement facts panel, but it's really just one cheap amino acid and there's very little other, you know, uh, amino acids in there that should be in whey. Now, some amino acids are going to be much more common in higher amounts than others. And that's why, like, I think you're onto this, Pete, you, you just got to look at that profile. So uh, I will, I will check in with Justin, like I said, on the extraction or, you know, the breed of cow, like how do they address it? Um, at the corporation he works with. Um, but it, it is true. People don't look at that amino acid profile. Uh, and I admit, other than maybe uh, leucine, uh, sometimes I'll look at glutamine. Glutamine is very common. Um, but I'll take a look at the leucine content or maybe the isoleucine, leucine, and valine, right, the three branch chains. But yeah. uh, other than that, yeah, I think you're on the, on the right track here. It could be anything from the processing to the breed of cow or what they fed the cow. Uh, that might have an impact on that. But you wouldn't think way from bottle to bottle, from can to can, that there'd be huge variations in that profile. I mean, on some level, whey should have an operational definition, right? Like when we say whey, we mean this, you know, meaning a certain profile. So uh, I will check into that. And that is disturbing what you said. And I'll tell you, I've seen a lot of this kind of stuff too in bars, uh, and in powders, the, you know, the idea of the nitrogen spiking or sometimes they'll even try to cover their asses and say, oh, look, it's, we added, it's got protein powder with added creatine. I'm like, well, you're, are you just jacking up the nitrogen number then? Because I'm not consuming my protein powder for creatine. Um, so, all right, but on to the next one. This is from um, Matt. Matt says, Iron Radio, first off, I want to say how much I love the show. As an ecologist, 
I love hearing people actually use science to back up what they are broadcasting across the web. Uh, my first question is about adding in extra push-ups and pull-ups throughout the week to gain a little more muscle mass in my back and chest. I've always had a strong lower body, but have struggled to gain size, uh, strength and size in my chest and my back. I haven't maxed in forever, so I, I don't know that currently, but I'm 27 years old. I'm six foot three. I weigh 225. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, he says, my lifts are as follows. Uh, five by five squat at 345. He could do five sets of five in the dead with 435. Five sets of five in the bench with 240. So, you know, Matt's strong. This is, yeah. these are very I mean, good. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, I was wondering, this is his first one, if doing pull-ups and push-ups at home most nights would help my lifts or would it, or if it would start to be detrimental by exhausting those muscles. What do you think, Dr. Mike? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, at first, I would have to know like a little bit more information. Um, you know, how much how much volume upper body do you do in the gym, like with your assistance exercises? You say you bench um, and all that stuff, but what other um, volume assistance things that you do to kind of help increase your bench? Do you actually do push-ups and pull-ups on those same days? Um, that would be some you know good information to really know. Um, the other thing is. Um, you know, when you say you do push-ups and pull-ups like at home, you know, keep in mind, especially, um, and this is more like a, a just food for thought. Most people that do push-ups um, or and pull-ups, they're not going to be with load. I mean, can you externally load those and you know with a weighted vest or plates and you know um, you know with a, a a belt you know hanging from you to add external load with the pull-ups? I mean, of course you can. Um, but you know, sometimes if you're doing it, maybe too much volume, um, over a short period of time, you know, that, that may potentially affect your recovery ability to go into the next upper body session, but it also depends on your training frequency. I mean, are you training upper body six days a week right, yeah. or are you training it two days a week? If you're training it, say two days a week, I don't really see how it's going to negatively impact your upper body sessions unless um, you're doing a lot of external loading, you know, on those days, um, as well, um, you know, versus say six days a week. So, um, it kind of depends on how your training program is set up already. Um, you know, keep in mind too, one of the things about, uh, assistance exercises and of course volume work, and they should, you should be doing the things to work on your weak points, um, you know, for whatever lifts that you want to, that you want to, um, increase, you know, one of the things about pull-ups and of course, you know, Lonnie understands this too. And even like for me, I don't do a lot of pull-ups only because I'm at a high body weight, like I'm 290. And so doing a lot of pull-ups, um, while useful, I mean, and I can do pull-ups as a matter of fact, uh, you know, several months ago, somebody came up to me and said, I bet you couldn't even do three pull-ups. And then I go over the bar and do 12 of them. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> yeah, but and the reason I don't do a lot of pull-ups is because I can't get the amount. I can't get the same amount of volume in doing pull-ups like I can doing other, uh, you know, back exercises and, and, and other volume work. So you kind of have to find out which assistance exercises work really best for you. Um, I can tell you that um, just overall, you need to be doing twice as much posterior work as you do anterior work. So like like a two-to-one ratio of posterior back work and glute work hamstring work and low back versus anterior work. Um, just, just to have more structural support um, and strength and power um, transferring to upper body movements. Um, you know, overhead pressing is something that I'm, I'm a really big fan of and, and many different variations. A lot of uh, people that, that bench a lot, 
um, don't do enough overhead work. And um, if you start incorporating overhead pressing um, in, into your training, you'll often find that your bench will actually go up. Um, and so and a lot of it has to do with with technical issues as well. It always comes down to really three things. It's something mental, physical or technical. And more times than not, it's always a technical issue that you need to fix first. Um, and then, you know, subsequently um, the physical or mental can either self-correct or maybe it's something that can, you know, wait um, or maybe it is not as a much of a priority. So um, right. hopefully that helps. Uh, and if you have, you know, further information, feel free to, you know, send uh, Lonnie and I, uh, you know, a message or send another, um, you know, listener mail in and we can uh, kind of um, point Follow you in up. some uh, other directions. Yeah. Uh, I like what you said about we really need to know overall volume because yeah. if, if he's interested in hypertrophy, here's right. my concern about doing, let's say he does, he does tons of, you know, 100 uh, push-ups and 50 pull-ups every night regardless. I think on some level, if his, if his training volume in the gym is already pretty high, these could become what I call junk reps, right? So you're right. just kind of wasting calories that you could, you, be, you could be using to grow. So uh, with chins, like your point, uh, John, chins have a certain amount of load, especially for a bigger dude. Uh, push-ups, there's very little load. I mean, a grown man doing push-ups, that's muscular endurance work, I think, you know, and I'm not sure anybody's going to get a gigantic chest doing doing push-ups um, right and like I said so that would be my concern so uh, depending on your volume you don't just and this is really it depends on on Matt but don't do junk reps if you start feeling like it's just exhaustive and you're just burning calories and it's just junk reps uh, that's not gonna help you get any bigger I, I wouldn't think so uh, the second question he has let me we'll just do this quickly before break and you sort of touched on it uh, John Second question is about building shoulders for high-impact sports. I play right. on a semi-pro rugby team with my shoulders, uh, take a lot of beating, various injuries over the years. I've sort of able to rehab them myself by researching physical therapy techniques, etc., along with some heavy lifting. My question is, what are your recommendations for building my shoulders to better withstand the beatings so that when I'm done with rugby in a few years, I can move into strength sports? I hope this isn't too long. Uh, look forward to listening to you guys for years to come. Thanks, Matt. Interesting question. Um, I, you know, of course, you know, strength coaching is my background, and I still consider myself, you know, a, a coach to, you know, to, to some capacity. Um, but one of the things I think is important to understand about just anatomy and structural anatomy about upper body and shoulders, you know, shoulders really respond, and it kind of depends on um, goals and and you know, sport and, and what the characteristics are of the sport. But overall, you know, shoulders and delts, they're, they're, they're more type one types of fibers. Um, and, you know, we can talk about muscle fiber types, you know, all we want. But and just because you might be, you know, heavily type twos and fast twitch, it doesn't mean that you don't have any like slow twitch fibers. But for really for like hypertrophy um, and course, you know, strength and they, and they they all overlap. Excuse me. But. Shoulders respond very, very well to higher amounts of volume, um, you know, not just, you know, weight or load, um, but just just higher volume in general. Of course, I mean, you know, when you're doing like 10 sets of 10, I mean, you're not going to be using 500 pounds, right. you know, sort of, sort of speak, but they respond pretty well to volume. Um, but, you know, take something like an example I can give you, even though I do like max overhead work, I don't do it often, but I also do a lot of dynamic effort work. But I always follow up dynamic dynamic effort overhead press work with something strict or something that's for volume. Right. And so even though I may do, 
you know, five by five dynamic effort work um, on those days, I would always follow it up with, you know, three or four sets of, say, you know, seated dumbbells um, and then added maybe some lat raises, you know, after that or, you know, um, you know, band pull apart, stuff like that. So where shoulders respond really well to volume, they also respond pretty well to stability. You can you can have, you know, bowling ball shoulders but not be able to stabilize at the top movement very well at an overhead press, um, considering you have to have a lot of trunk stability um, as well. And so they respond very well to volume and hypertrophy um, and stability. You know, you might be able to, you know, overhead press, you know, 185 or 225 or whatever it may be, but, you know, doing some uh, a half uh, baby get up, you know, with a 15 or 20 pound kettlebell or some body weight movements and some, you know, primal chain types of movements that there's no load and you actually have to control the movement and control yourself eccentrically. A lot of times for people, that's really difficult um, because they're so used to having their prime movers take over for a lot of stabilizers and synergistic muscle activity. So, you know, try to incorporate, you know, volume and aspects of stability. And I think you'll find in a very short period of time, anywhere from, you know, two, three, four weeks or, you know, a few months that you, you, you feel more stable and you feel more strong because when you're more stable, when your body feels stable, um, your nervous system can actually work with you instead of against you. That's good. I, I know you're, um, you're way better versed, brother, than I am with some of the overhead stuff it's interesting what you just said about the volume thing i when i was trying to take up as much space as possible i didn't do a a, a, i didn't do like a huge amount of direct (coughs) shoulder work i would sort of do like literally three sets in the middle of the gym i'd grab some heavy dumbbells or a barbell and i was not that strong compared to you not not strong right but you know like 185 maybe 205 and just try to do a couple of, of, of reps, you know, but, um, that's interesting. You don't, even see, you don't even see that. You don't even see like people over at pressing, unless you're a strongman competitor. Um, I mean, you don't even see lay people at the gym and guys even overhead pressing, you know, 185, 205, or even 225. You just don't really see that. Yeah. And um, I sure don't know. I'll tell you, but I know, right. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. I like what, what Pete's saying here about <clears throat> basically wanting to have enough mass uh, that he can go on into strength sports because oftentimes when I think about shoulders, like my shoulders tend to grind a bit when I bench press, you know, mm-hmm. and so, but he's not talking about, I don't think so much within the joint, but I will say this extra mass. There's a difference. You can look at someone. Uh, and I think you are sort of alluding to this, John, that like you can have some people with cappy bowling ball looking delts and it's impressive physique wise, but they're, they're not so much thick. You know, they sort of have a, they don't have a lot of depth. And right. I'm very impressed with guys, you know, they're, the the clavicular fibers of their pec and their mm-hmm. their shoulders and it kind of bleeds into their into their traps and their rhomboids back and they're I mean they're really deep and thick and that's something that heavier weights give you I in my opinion. yeah it it does and you also see a lot of kind of disproportional um, factors too it's like you might have like big bowling ball shoulders but your chest development or upper chest development is kind of disproportional to it yeah you know yeah. um and even and it's like you know, people will spend, they just train like too many mirror muscles and not enough back work. Totally. Um, you know, and I don't, I mean, and Lonnie, I know you know this and I've told other people this before too. I, I have never seen somebody with a huge monster thick back and, and be weak. Um, no. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's I like, I mean, you got a thick monster back. I mean, 
you know, you're the overhead pressing a lot or your deadlift is way over 600. <laughs> yeah. It's know? a difference between, you know, the, the power bodybuilders and sort of the, the pretty boys, you know? Right. The, yeah. But some of these guys like the Dorian Yates types, you know, branch worn guys are so thick and those guys yeah. are pushing heavy loads. And this, I guess this is kind of, I think what you're getting at. Matt said, um, as far as taking a beating, uh, I've actually read stories in the past, and this is very anecdotal, but, you know, sort of literally in muscle magazines of pro bodybuilders that were in car wrecks or pro powerlifters, and their amount of muscle mass kind of saved their ass. Um, yeah. There was a story. I can't remember who it was. I bet Phil knows. The guy tore the steering wheel off the column. He was in a huge wreck and, and walked away. Like, the wreck was so violent, you know, the steering wheel breaks off, and this guy's so thick, you know, that he he just took the beating. There was another one, another story I read in Muscle Mags years ago where a guy was thrown like twenty feet from his car, Holy and, he, shit. and he got up and walked away because he's just so <laughs> thickly built. It's like wearing leather armor or something, you know. Yeah. So I mean, but it, I, I, and I don't. I mean, those are those are kind of you know um, crazy, but kind of funny tales at the same time. No, and right, they're, exactly. They're, and they're yeah. also, I mean, they're also kind of extreme too. But you know, we talk about like being like thick. I think a lot of people mistake, well, so it means I got to be, you know, 250, 300 pounds, you know, walking around all year long. I mean, no, I mean, obviously genetics is a big factor too, but just, just having physical strength, right. Just saves you in so many ways. Um, sure. and it's, and it's almost as like the closest thing to the fountain of youth that a lot of people will ever get to, you know, right, um, right on. Okay, well, there you go. That's the mail in the news. We're going to go to break when we come back. Uh, we'll at least touch on uh, a couple of nervous system tweaks. I'll, I'll tell everybody what's going on in my lab, and, and uh, Dr. Mike can give us some input. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. your weekly fix of iron radio in addition to being a popular institute on itunes we are also on email simply go to www.ironradio.org 
and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, folks, we're back. It's Lonnie and John, uh, and we are going to discuss nervous system tweaks, things that you can do that acutely, like more or less immediately affect your nervous system. Um, there are two that I want to touch on, and we've touched on these in different ways in the past. But just to kind of focus on this, especially uh, getting some input from Dr. Mike here, uh, one of them is PAP, uh, post-activation yeah. potentiation. And there's a whole body of literature on this. Like there's different ways to prime your nervous system uh, so it's, it's actually stronger. It's more explosive and that sort of thing. And when I've looked at the literature, I found studies suggesting that if you do something like, here's what we do. It, this is a very simple form of this. We would uh, have people do something like vertical jumps on a mat, and then we'd have them push against an immovable bar. Uh, like there's so much weight, there's students hanging on it, like it's not going anywhere, you lock the bar in place, and they do a maximal voluntary, just isometric contraction, just push as hard as they can, the bar's not going anywhere, uh, for a count of 10, and then we get them back on the jumping pad and they can jump higher. They have more flight time and jump height and stuff like that. So that's sort of a classic act, uh, a potentiation uh, scenario, although there are other ones. I will say this, when it comes to trying to prime your nervous system and potentiate, there's a fine line between getting that priming effect and actually fatiguing, right? Like you wouldn't want to push against that immovable bar for two minutes straight because then you're going to be fatigued and your, your right. subsequent performance will not be good. And so when I look at this literature, I wanted to know how long does potentiation last? And I think a lot of it depends on the potentiation protocol but I've read papers anywhere from three minutes to 40 minutes. Uh, I, don't, I don't know about that 40 minute. That seems awfully long to be primed. Yeah. But what, what are your thoughts about that stuff? Talking about post-activation potentiation. And I've talked about this in some of my classes and stuff before. Um, it's basically kind of like acute enhancement of, of, of muscle function. And mm -hmm. really the, the performance effects um, of, of PAP um, really come from kind of like um, suggest like lower low like ballistic exercises also provide like an effective stimulus but they're kind of modulated you know by loading like recovery and physical characteristics but essentially you'll see a lot of in the science um, with depth jumps and weighted jumps um, really produce the kind of the most effective for actually inducing PAP okay so let me kind of so that's kind of the the, the science sort of definition um, but like a practical training application would be let's just say that you work up to some type of heavy load. It doesn't necessarily have to be like an all-out, you know, max effort. But let's just say you work up to a heavier load, you know, 90%, and maybe it's, you know, overhead pressing for, you know, 225 for, you know, one, two, or three reps. So after the last heavier load set, you know, you would rest anywhere from, especially with heavy, you know, heavier loads, you got to rest, say, three, you know, three to five minutes. And then um, you do a back offset or a drop set with a significant lower load or lower percentage. So let's just say that your your last set was 225, and your drop set, which would induce PAP, would be say you know 165 or 175, and you go to you know a failure or or pretty close to actual failure. Um, so it's essentially a way to to potentiate and in, increase strength and 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 hypertrophy um, by it kind of makes um, supposedly it makes the, the, the heavier loads, 
um, feel lighter yeah. over time. Um, and it's, it's, it's a way to increase like, explosive power performance as well. Now, the issue is, is that, um, the, the impact of the recovery duration, uh, actually needs more research, um, suggesting anywhere from like one to six minutes okay, have, been, good, yeah. have been prescribed like successfully for under like multiple instances. Um, while the, while the actual effect of strength, um, and like sex or like male versus females response, um, is, is not really um, as clear, but I will say from experience, and I don't do this a whole lot, but I think, um, and this is just from experience, it's kind of more, you know, anecdotal. It's some exercises work a lot better than others when it comes to effects of PAP. I think it works really good on bench and overhead press, um, squat to some degree, and I don't think it works well for for deadlifting because you kind of have to think, you know. When you're doing like a heavier deadlift load, by the time you get to the heavier set, I mean, you've already induced, you know, some level of, of fatigue um, and nervous system kind of fatigue. Yeah. And then you and then you do a drop set or two of lower loads. The the speed and explosiveness of those lighter loads is just not going to be there as much. Um, so it's kind of exercise and load dependent as well. All right. Let me um, ask you, John. Still, let me ask you this because yeah, you mentioned yeah, yeah. practical. I, you know, you, you tend to do that a lot. It, which is good. Like, what? So, what's the practical application? So, let's pretend someone's at a meet or they're getting ready for their heaviest set in the gym. What would you do? Like, could somebody actually during their, um, you know, warm up sets before they go out on the platform, could they do something to potentiate somewhat? What would you do? Um, I'm not sure if I would do like an actual meet. Okay. Um, because, and and I mean, a meet competitions. I mean, it's. It's not really about potentiation. It's really about you know pure one rm especially with some type of powerlifting meet. Um, but I would think it would have worked pretty well with strongman in terms of actually increasing like work capacity and you know some extra time under tension, um, you know you know lactate production and you know enhancing you know metabolic glycolysis and metabolic stress, which is one of three factors that facilitate um, you know mechanisms of hypertrophy. Um, but you don't you don't have to do it. I think with just um, heavier loading you can also incorporate aspects of like complex training as well so you do some type of multi-joint exercise and you're immediately followed up by an explosive movement right um, so let's just say it's you know you do a set of five on squats and then you immediately follow that up with say you know just vertical jumps you can also do it with say lower end depth jumps with some type of load maybe it's you know 15 or 20 pound dumbbells you take a, a step off you know um, eight or ten inch ten inch box um, you squat down and then you drop the dumbbells and then you explode up, you know, maximally, you know, with the jump as well. So it's, you're, you're also potentiating, but, um, it's almost, uh, it's, it's a little bit different uh, effect versus the potentiation is more, you work up to a heavier load and then you drop off, you know, to a, to a lighter load and supposedly it makes things more explosively. Um, so yeah, and it's, it's still, um, it's been around, you know, a lot and there's a lot of really good, interesting science on it. Um, and there's always, you know, more work and practical application to be yeah. done. Yeah. Anecdotally, I can tell you, like I used to work up to in my, my usual for years, I'd work up to four Oh five and do like a set of six or eight reps in the squat. And then my final set was a burnout set with two and a quarter. And it always felt so light, you know, yep. because I, I, I was kind of primed. Now I will say this, I'm going to add a layer of a complexity to this. You mentioned gender differences. We're actually taking, uh, we're going to present uh, at Experimental Biology in Chicago in April. And uh, one of the students and I have been looking at gender differences in what coffee does to, um, 
Well, one one student is looking at what coffee does to potentiation, and the other is looking at the stretch reflex. So right. just to be very clear, right, potentiation is sort of, you know, lingering uh, elevated performance, like you said, a couple of minutes. Um, the stretch shorten cycle or the stretch reflex is another nervous system phenomenon. And maybe I'll put a little picture on our Facebook page that actually my son made for me. But uh, the idea with that, of course, is that you're um, – prior load, prior stretch on the muscle, it, it doesn't just create an elasticity with the soft tissue. There is a real neural component with this. You get, you, right. you can actually affect the motor neuron uh, and sort of the spinal reflex. And we, again, we've touched on this in shows in the past, but um, yet another way to do that. And like I said, so I, I, one student I have is looking at the additive effects of caffeine and coffee on potentiation. And as it turns out, it does look like it has an effect because we were hovering around statistical significance with just our little 10 second pushes, you know, uh, with the isometric kind of approach um, to the potentiation. And then when they came in and they drank coffee an hour before, oh, the performance was definitely better. So yeah. it, was, it was interesting that the coffee seemed to boost that priming effect of potentiation. So, and again, not to confuse it, but then there's another phenomenon, nervous system, and the, again, like I was just saying, the stretch reflex, and I've got another student, she's looking at what happens to the stretch reflex in boys versus girls. We've already presented stuff before that you can enhance uh, explosive, like bar velocity and power and stuff with submaximal loads uh, when, you, when you combine coffee and prior stretch. So what, what one of the students is looking at is she's actually looking at does is there any difference between boys and girls? And I can tell you in that literature review, I was surprised in 2012, uh, since 2012, there's been a couple of papers that suggest that women may have a superior stretch reflex in some mm. ways than men. There's there's an ocular test where they can do, do with your eye, that there's the patellar reflex. A lot of people familiar with like the hammer against your patellar tendon there. Um, and there's some suggestion in the literature that women are better at this than men. And that surprised me. Uh, so I guess when, when we talk about lifts, uh, all I could really say would be that this, the stretch reflex, whether you're going to drink coffee first or not, and again, the coffee does have an additive effect. It looks like probably a 10% or so additive effect. Um, the stretch reflex, uh, we've seen like strict reps, like pause reps versus stretch reps, We'll see twenty eight percent differences in stuff like force output. Yeah, one, right. Yeah, well, force output for sure in terms of because I, I know you've done a lot of you know um, explosive and one RM testing with the use of caffeine and, right. and one of the things that another faculty member um, here wants to do with some graduate students is actually do like a kind of a timing caffeine timing study um, versus say like you know immediately before you know thirty minutes before you know an hour before yeah. and even yeah. like you know so and kind of look at the the timing because I don't there, there's really as far as I know, there's not a whole lot of studies on actually looking at caffeine timing. Well, right? there is this. Uh, I mean, I think there's there's a general agreement in the literature that it's around 60 minutes. Right, um, exactly. Uh, but but um, there was a very weird paper that came out a couple of years ago, and I don't have the author in front of me, that actually said that that doesn't coincide with peak blood levels. Like you would think that that mm -hmm. 60 minute is right where your blood levels are peaking, and that's where your performance peaks. But Apparently but that can not. also be that that could also be like if you're not if blood levels aren't peaking at 60 minutes, it could also be because that person may not be a good responder to caffeine too, or True. the type of caffeine. Or it, it could be their yeah their their genotype. It could be uh, co-ingestion with carbohydrates, or you know, there's a lot of stuff. Yeah, even body fat levels affect that apparently. So, oh wow, um, but, yeah. but that that 60 minutes before 
the max effort. That I think there's a pretty good agreement in the literature with that. But you're right. A lot of that stuff needs teased apart more. Um, so let's make this practical. Stretch reflex. To me, one of the things you can do with this would be the kind of speed work that you do. So, yep. like, you know, if you're going to have 30 to 50 percent, let's say, of your max in the bench press, um, you could purposely sort of get that stretch in the bottom. I'm not saying bounce it off your pecs like a trampoline necessarily, but kind of with that kind of idea. Rather than a strict, you know, pause for one second at the bottom and then press very strictly, purposely getting that stretch in the bottom it does ignite your motor neurons. It does affect your nervous system. It is not just uh, like a muscle elasticity thing bouncing the bar up. So, you know, I, I when I've done speed work, for lack of a better term, um, there's two ways I do that. One is the bouncy kind, you know, where you're literally getting that stretch and blowing it up. And the other is, is a pause and go. It's not going to ignite the stretch reflex in the same way, but it, it is... You do get sort of that, you know, that sort of on a cell level, that actin and myosin start to grab. You know, you're getting very tense in the bottom of the movement, and then you explode maximally with a 30 or 50% load. So it's max effort, not max yep. load. And so those are the two ways that I kind of like to do that, the speed work, right? One is pause and go, super explosion, but the other is purposely getting stretchy and trying to invoke the stretch reflex. Uh, awesome. Uh, final note with this stuff. The reason I brought this up is because if you do these sorts of things regularly, you know, like get potentiated before you do that burnout set or you do some speed work along with just the heavy loads all the time. Not only are the, are the lighter loads that you're doing with some of this stuff um, probably helpful to joint longevity and stuff, but I really think you'd get a super training effect out of this. After months and months of this, you know, that you're actually if you can actually be generate more force or power because you're doing something like potentiating before the, the main event or using the stretch reflex to get extra, you know, um, performance out of it over time, that boosted performance, even if it's just a, a few percent, it should add up, right? You're, you're more explosive or you're generating more force or whatever it is. And over many months, you got to think that that's going to have a cumulative effect, you mm -hmm. know, sort of a super training effect. So... Anyway, so there we have it. We've talked about that in months past or years past. Now it's been a long time. Um, so, yeah, there are nervous system tweaks. And like I said, maybe a little diagram I'll put on Facebook or something will help help explain that. But, um, I, I, yeah, I just think it's a, it, they're interesting concepts. And like I said, in our lab, we're looking at how caffeine affects them. And it does seem to be additive, not synergistic, but at least additive. Whereas the coffee, whether it's potentiation and that lingering, priming of the nervous system or whether it's the stretch shorten cycle and the stretch reflex um the coffee does seem to help and by the way it helps boys and girls uh, and that's what we're going to be presenting in uh, in chicago so so that's it awesome all right everybody thanks uh we will see you again next week all righty see you then Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. 
uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.